Even the disappearance of man-eating beasts around the world contains a surprising fact. It isn't fear for our lives that has led to their destruction. Most have dwindled inch by inch, not with a bang, but a whimper. An accumulating loss as we invade the animal's habitat, slaughter their prey, sell their skin or gallbladders as trophies or superstitious remedies. Often, as with the bounty-hunting manias of the 19th and 20th centuries, the slaughter is aimed primarily at protecting livestock. Only when a predator becomes rare do we tend to root it out as though the beast was evil incarnate. What we are truly afraid of is the unknown. It isn't fear that drives us to extinguish fearsome beasts, but once they are gone, it is fear that keeps us from bringing them back. Welcome back to Zoo Notable and a very happy Earth Day weekend to everyone. This month I have focused on conservation themed books and today's book is nothing but conservation. It's The Once and Future World by J.B. McKinnon. And this was a tough book to create my Zoo Notable for because there were just so many small ideas that melded into each other. It was kind of like an ecosystem where every living thing supports each other. I've had this book in my possession for several years, having picked it up from a bookstore while on vacation locally in the Pacific Northwest. It wasn't until a friend sent me another copy with a note, you have to read this, that I finally dusted off my copy and began digging in. And one of the reviews claims, this book is a delight. McKinnon shows us afresh the world we thought we knew through a kaleidoscopic lens of startling facts, illuminating insight, and flat out wonderful writing. Now I point this out because this review basically took the words right out of my mouth. So if this so notable resonates with you, only know that this is the tip of the iceberg from a book sharing with us nature as it was, as it is, and as it could be. And I really did enjoy this book and I think you'll love it as well. So let's jump in with discussing the big ideas of the once and future world. And we'll kick things off with big idea number one. We don't know what we don't know. Quote, in just the past 40 years, the worldwide population of great sharks, those species that grow more than six feet in length, has declined by 90% or more. Reef sharks are down by as much as 97%. When Sala and his colleagues first circulated their research from Kingman Island, they were met with flat skepticism from their scientific peers. Then they sent out the paper again, this time with photos of the schools of sharks included. The doubters grew quiet. Before long, some of them were saying they wanted to visit the reef just to experience it for themselves. So have you ever had a I told you so moment at that moment where you shared something important and relevant and perhaps unbelievable only to be met with doubt and maybe even eye rolls? And then you find the evidence to prove that you were right all along. Now, I know in my life, I've had several moments like this. And as badly as I may have wanted to scream, I told you so, I now know that I can't really blame the people who doubted me, especially in today's world where so much misinformation is shared on a daily basis. I also know how it feels to doubt someone else because, as I just said, we live in a world where misinformation is prevalent 
and scammers or folks with their own agenda run amok. Now, when I've doubted someone, I would hope that they would be gracious and compassionate enough to realize I just didn't know. And, you know, what we don't know, we often don't know. I mean, yeah, it's really true. We don't know what we don't know. And it's okay to have a little healthy skepticism in life. It's also healthy to show compassion. So don't let the fact that you're right be the reason to put other people down. Our ignorance isn't a bad thing. Our skepticism isn't a bad thing either. It's important to trust people, but it's also important to verify. Live like that and soon you'll turn doubters into believers and having them wanting to explore your passion more because you let them come to their truth and their own way on their own terms. And that makes a huge difference in conservation. It also makes a huge difference in building bridges and even in providing self-care for yourself. Now, this big idea is on its own great, but it also melts right into big idea number two, which is how we forget or change blindness. Quote, Ray Rogers, a Canadian environmentalist, published his double disappearance concept in 1994, a year ahead of David Pally's shifting baseline syndrome or Peter Kahn's and Batya Friedman's environmental amnesia. In fact, the idea that we forget the natural world of the past appears to be regularly rediscovered. Biologist Raymond Dasman said in 1989, but one adjusts to slow, deleterious changes in the environment and begins to accept them as normal. Young people growing up in smog have no basis for believing that things were better in the past or could be better in the future if certain actions were taken. The abnormal is accepted as normal and becomes the standard by which future change is measured. Oh, I've heard this one before, the bad becoming normal. I've actually experienced this before, too. A couple years ago, during what is annoyingly being called wildfire season, I had a friend tell me, it's not too bad this year. I truly groaned because I had lived in the Pacific Northwest for 15 years, and it's only the last six or so that we've had wildfires so bad in the summer that we started preparing for it with warnings, burn bans, and alert systems. Saying it isn't that bad this year is the idea of taking an extreme scenario and normalizing it. Now, unfortunately, humans are an incredibly adaptable species. So our memory shuts out the before wildfires were a yearly occurrence and accepts and adapts to wildfires occurring every year. The reason this is so dangerous is because if we begin to accept wildfires as the norm, we won't try to do things to prevent them. Now, yes, I do understand that some wildfires are normal. Some of them just get a little bit more out of control. But the intensity, the frequency, and the number of destructive fires is increasing more than the historical numbers indicate is sustainable. But that is just one small example, and there are hundreds of others. The problem is we humans have what is called change blindness. It's a phenomenon where dramatic events can be overlooked due to distraction or focus on another challenge in the moment. And there have been dozens of studies that show change blindness. The most famous study tested subjects on noticing a dramatic addition 
while focusing on counting the number of basketball passes made by players. Now, everyone's focus was so intense that nobody noticed a person dressed in a gorilla suit walking directly into the scene and then dancing around. Now, this shifts it to our own environment, too. Now, even J.B. McKinnon, the author, saw how change blindness can make it hard to notice dramatic changes that happen over a long period of time. He himself completely missed the elimination of one-third of a wheat field because it happened slowly over a video. And he was even warned ahead of time to look for it. And McKinnon writes about why we ignore these changes. He says, memory conspires against nature. The forgetting can be begin in the instant change takes place because the human mind did not evolve to see its surroundings, what we now so clinically refer to as the environment, as the focus of our attention, but rather as the backdrop against which is more interesting things take place. We generally don't notice small or gradual changes. Our minds would otherwise be crowded with turning leaves and the paths of clouds across the sky. Beguiling madness, but a madness all the same. Now, I've spoken about this topic before, but from the other perspective and how it's helpful. Last month, I shared Mel Robbins' high five habit, and she discussed a reticular activating system, the RAS, which acts as a bouncer for our brain so we don't overload it with everything, everywhere, all at once. Now, it is important to weed out non-vital information, but it's also important to notice the world changing right before our eyes. And when things do change, it's important to ask questions to see if this is a good change or if this is something that needs addressing. Now, not all change requires action to go back to the quote-unquote good old days, but change does warrant reflection and consideration. And if you fail to notice these extreme changes in your life, don't worry, you are not alone. In fact, scientists have a name for the belief that you can't be fooled by change, and it's called change blindness blindness. And if you don't believe that you are capable of missing significant changes to a scene, then you won't heighten your awareness in order to not miss them. This means that you, will prob you probably will end up missing those things. And change blindness blindness is the failure to see that we so often fail to see. So let's wake up and remove the blinders on our eyes. And when we see the world as it really is, as, as it really was, we can determine what changes are good for us and which are changes that will only cause us heartbreak and challenges. And wouldn't you know that paying attention leads us right into big idea number three. We live in a beautiful world if you only pay attention. Quote, I resolved to spend 60 minutes, just a single hour, giving nature my fullest attention. The results were immediate. I carefully examined the birds and the water at my local pond. It was a peaceful scene, the ducks push-pushing across the surface or dunking their heads to feed in the shallows. Then the lake exploded. A bald eagle hunting ducks tipped its wings and certainly then bore down with terrible speed on three dabblers who desperately left the water with their wings and piped a call that spoke to me more of dignified effort than of terror. 
life, death, and the great wheel of eternity. Here it all was in the heart of the city, yet one observation stood out above all others. Dozens of people surrounded the pond, women jogging, children playing, men throwing sticks to their dogs to retrieve. Not one of them showed the slightest sign of having noticed the drama that had just played out before their eyes. Now, if I consider that I had walked around the water's edge perhaps a hundred times, then 99 times out of those hundred, I had been just as oblivious as everyone else. Now, there's a story that McKinnon shares of his father remembering his life and childhood on the North Atlantic shore. After hearing about the grand memories his father had with so much life around the sea, the water, and the shore, McKinnon makes a statement, ours is an age of emptiness. It's an ugly world. His father looks at him sharply and says, I don't live in an ugly world. I live in a beautiful world. And I perfectly agree. We do live in a beautiful world, a precious world, a world worth saving and protecting, and also a world worth treasuring and sharing. We just have to notice it. We have to pay attention. And this attention takes de deliberate and consistent practice, though. And even McKinnon admits that if he hadn't been deliberately practicing giving his full attention to nature, he probably would have missed that extraordinary dramatic scene unfolding at the pond. But do we have to give our full attention? I mean, what's the point? Doesn't mindfulness sound woo-woo and new age or maybe even old age? McKinnon explains, an awareness of nature is not first and foremost a sentimental or a spiritual practice, but a profoundly realistic one, a way of binding ourselves to the simple truth that human beings depend on ecological systems for our survival. Awareness is a countercurrent to the feedback loop of modern life. Pay attention and we will value nature more. When we value nature more, we work harder to reverse its decline. Reverse the decline in variety and abundance, and nature becomes steadily more fascinating, more spectacular, more meaningful. And this is what paying attention and being mindful is all about. It's about appreciating nature. And when we appreciate something, as positive psychology professor Talbin Shaharsh tells us, it appreciates. The more grateful and revered something is, the more we look to preserve it, and the more abundant it becomes for us. Abundance begets abundance. So what do you love about nature? I mean, anything, everything, small or large. Let's pay attention to it. Let's appreciate it and learn about it. Your love and passion for nature will grow, as will your desire to protect and preserve it. And the more likely you are to notice the changes and share your findings with others creating a positive change for your passion to stay around for generations to come. And big idea number four is keystone species and trophic cascades. Quote, the otters were not the end of the cascade. As they disappeared, another chain reaction started. Otters are predators too, and among their favorite foods are sea urchins, those bottom-dwelling creatures that look like balls of knitting needles. Urchins, in turn, are plant eaters with a special fondness for the long, banner-like seaweeds that are the trees in the underwater kelp forests along North Pacific shores. Remove otters from the food chain, and the booming population of urchins soon grazes the kelp down to stubble. Now, even that is not the end of it. 
change in kelp forests into urchin barrens, and you alter everything from the diet of bald eagles to the growth rate of barnacles to the height of the waves that strike the shore. And I have spoken about keystone species and trophic cascades before. And last year on the International Day of Biodiversity, we discussed where the wild things were. And these two ideas came up about wolves and their cascading impact on the environment. And of course, sea otters. The sea otters to me really do symbolize keystone species and relating them to keystone habits. Again, if you aren't familiar with the term keystone, it refers to the very old doorways made of stones. At the top of the doorway arch would be a center stone. This is the keystone. If it's removed, the entire doorway crumbles and falls apart. A keystone species act the same way. If you take them out, the whole ecosystem falls apart. But I also relate this to keystone behaviors or habits. This is the one most important action that you can take where all your other habits build off of or are strongly supported by that said habit. Let's take sleep, for example. When we get enough rest, we are able to make better decisions about food and activities. We have more willpower and motivation to exercise and finish projects. We have more focus. We're in better moods. And that list goes on and on remove sleep and our entire wellness structure begins to crumble. And I do think that conservation works the same way. We can create that one action that others build off of. Perhaps it's, let's say, eliminating plastic bags. This can be powerful as we bring our canvas bags into the store, which could inspire us or at least remind us to not buy products wrapped in single-use plastics. Or we can continue reducing single-use plastics in our lives, like utensils, straws, plastic bottles, and so much more. Or maybe it's conserving energy that's your keystone, looking for ways to cut down your driving, or conserving water. It starts with one thing, and all our other behaviors build upon it. Now, McKinnon and, to be honest, other environmentalists tend to focus on the negative for keystone species to help remind us that we need these species in our ecosystem. He says, remove the single species and you end up with a different environment. But I say, include the species as part of the environment and watch it flourish. So what is your keystone habit that you know your life would be incredibly different if you included? And how can you change the world by changing just one thing in your own life? Finally, big idea number five, nature doesn't have to be useful to be important. Quote, the idea that other species make important contributions to our lives and taken as a whole form the basis of our continued existence on this planet is one of the most important of the past 20 years. It also has the unfortunate side effect of encouraging the view that every living thing should be valued in terms of its practical measurable usefulness to people. Extend this notion far enough and it even becomes possible to weigh whether the absence of a particular species may be more valuable to human interests than its presence. Okay, folks, I have to be honest, that last sentence scares the bejeebus out of me. 
When we determine the value of an animal, a plant, or an ecosystem based on what it does for us, we are missing the entire point of living. I mean, every creature has a purpose, even the ones we hate, mosquitoes, spiders. Um, well, those critters are keystone species in the right, right, and they do us a world of good, but that's a discussion for another time. We have sharks, leeches, snakes, centipedes. Now, many of these are primary food sources for other animals, which again, creates that healthy ecosystem uh, that we discussed in the last big idea. Mosquitoes feed bats and bats eat mosquitoes. And if we don't have some mosquitoes, we won't have any bats. And then when we get mosquitoes or some other obnoxiously annoying flying creature, we won't have an excellent source of pest control. Sharks are another example. They're an apex predator in the ocean. They're also a keystone species and they're also an indicator species. When there are no sharks in the area, when there are supposed to be sharks or historically had sharks, it's a strong indication that the ecosystem is on the verge of collapse. We need to act to try and bring sharks back so the coral reef can go back to equilibrium and flourish. And the problem with valuing animals based on what they do for us is that conservation of so many species is dependent on humans valuing such animals alive more than they value the death or destruction of those living things. When destroying the environment and destroying the rainforest is more valuable than protecting and preserving the rainforest, we're in trouble. And I hate that we have to do this, but conservation depends on us proving that these animals and these ecosystems are worth more alive than dead. This is why I specifically despise trophy hunting and canned hunting. Even when that money supposedly goes to local communities or to conservation, which research shows it doesn't really trickle down the far the pipeline, it usually stays in the government most of the time. This activity shows the world and shows local communities that lions, elephants, and other endangered species are worth more dead than alive. But this is also why I love ecotourism, as long as it's ethically done. But even if the money stays in the government instead of trickling down to locals like it needs to, promoting ecotourism shows that people will continue to pay good money as long as the animals are there. It proves that the animals are useful to us, alive and thriving. But even if it's, you know, a silly butterfly that only looks beautiful to us, each animal is important. It's important to the ecosystem, it's important to the world, and it's important to itself. And by the way, you are important too. You deserve to be protected and cared for as much as any ecosystem and animal living in it. So in case you needed to hear this, you are special, you are important, and you can make a difference. And let's go be the best versions of ourselves for the animals, for our communities, and for the once and future world. Well, that's all I've got for this Zoonotable Once and Future World by J.B. McKinnon. It's a very powerful book, a very powerful message. Which idea resonated the most with you? And how can you implement that idea starting today? 
And thanks for joining me. Let's close up with a few quotes from A Once and Future World. J.B. McKinnon says, To know what is, you must know what was. He also says, Conservation's most fatal flaw, perhaps, has been to encourage the separation of people from nature. Parks here, humans there. St. Augustine once said, How then am I to find you if I have no memory of you? Back to J.B. McKinnon, who says, You might argue that we have forgotten facts because they are no longer useful in the way that they once were. Is that true? Is a meadowlark's song, which never had much to offer our daily survival, less meaningful today than it was to our ancestors? Far more likely is that the meadowlark and the coot, the shrike and the bear, the weasel and the lion are simply no longer a part of our lives. He also says the issue today is not whether you have you see heaven in a wildflower, but whether you look at the flower at all. There's a Hawaiian proverb that says, Aikawa mamua, akawa mahope, which is the future is in the past. Michael Sule, one of the founders of conservation biology, once said, when we choose the kind of nature we will live in, we are also choosing the kind of human beings we will be. We shape the world and it shapes us in return. We are the creator and the created, the maker and the made. J.B. McKinnon says, nature may not be what it was, but it isn't simply gone. It's waiting. And finally, J.B. McKinnon tells us, nature is still with us, constantly available. We need only to remember, reconnect, and rewild. To remember what nature can be. Reconnect with it as something meaningful in our lives. And start to remake a wilder world.